0: Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi all, thank you for listening. Nina and I are back to talk about the agents in the Boston FBI office in the 1950s and 60s. Five of the agents we're discussing today comprised a special task force team initially created to solve the Brinks case. It was headed by Special Agent Edmund McNamara, who we introduced in Episode 1. Special Agent John B. Green will be making a comeback later in Season 1, but not as a
1: Fed. Special Agent John Kehoe will also be rejoining us at various points in the future. According to Vinnie Teresa's memoir, Kehoe persuaded Vinnie to become the government's star informant.
0: Yeah, star informant, all right. Star liar is more like it. And let's not forget, Kehoe was stuck monitoring the wiretaps at Raymond Patriarca's office for the majority of the time. Talk about mind numbing. I had a lifetime of listening to similar conversations. So you remember that guy over there? You mean the guy on the corner? No, not that guy, the guy up the street from there. You know, the guy who did that thing the other day, the guy who did that thing on Monday. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Oh, fuck. You need a bottle of aspirin or vodka to listen to that on a daily.
1: All right. You know, since this episode is your brainchild, I'll let you lead. Before we get into the personalities that occupied the Boston FBI office, I think we should talk a bit about the workplace culture. If you had entered the FBI offices on the 10th floor of the Sheraton building in 1956, you would have first seen a large framed photo of Director Hoover and his staff. Near that photo was another framed photo of Hoover's favorite prose. Loyalty. If you work for a man in heaven's name work for him, speak well of him and stand by the institution he represents. Remember, an ounce of loyalty is worth a pound of cleverness. If you must growl, condemn, and eternally find fault, why resign your position, and when you are on the outside, damn to your heart's content but as long as you are part of the institution, do not condemn it. If you do, the first high wind that comes along will blow you away, and probably you will never know why. When you first read that quote, it sounds like something you'd read in a turn-of-the-century reader or William Bennett's Book of Virtues, old-fashioned, Victorian, naive. It seems out of place in a law enforcement office. Do you think the agents strive to uphold that? I mean, to be loyal to each other. Well, it was more about the loyalty to the institution, but not only. It was loyalty to Hoover himself. Criticisms were not tolerated. If you didn't like the workplace culture, you got out or were forced out. I'm thinking of Special Agent Gerard Komen here as I say this. We'll be telling his story later in the season. But the Special Agents did look after their own. Even decades later, the idea of criticizing the FBI as an institution was viewed as anathema by former employees. That attitude extended to colleagues as well.
0: Sort of like a mother who thinks her child can do no wrong.
1: Yes, but to take it a step further, the ends justified the means, always. The successful resolution of a crime, no matter the cost, either money or lives, it didn't matter. Some cases were never prosecuted. Others were like the Brinks case. The Fed zeroed in on a person or persons, and that was it. Laser focused to the end.
0: But that attitude left countless people incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit.
1: No question, and the true perpetrators were allowed to roam the streets and not only commit crimes of a financial matter, but murder. This attitude informed decisions that were made for decades, and as we've seen before, the impact can still be seen today. As we go on in this series, you'll see more of how this played out in practice.
0: Sad to say, far too many times. Back to the men we're discussing today. Nina, I think you said you wanted to discuss Edmund McNamara first. For those of you who listened to episode one, you will remember that special agent McNamara was responsible for the first and only conviction of Richie's mentor, Jack Kelly. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already.
1: Edmund Leo McNamara was born in Boston on April 13, 1920 to Michael, a fireman, and Catherine McNamara. He was the third of six boys. Edmund started his tackle for Holy Cross grid squads in the early 1940s, later going on to the professional ranks with the New York Giants, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Providence Steamrollers. During World War II, he co- he commanded tor- motor torpedo boats in the Pacific and was awarded the Silver Star for gallantry in action. He ended the war as a Navy lieutenant.
0: Hey, you know, I'm usually the one flubbing my words I a little know. bit. know. <laughs> Anyhow.
1: Pro ball player and war
0: hero at McNamara. But McNamara wasn't the only football player in the
1: group, right? Nope. Ernie Schwatzer was born in Brockton in March 1917 to Rudolph and Louise Schwatzer. He attended Waltham High. Waltham. Waltham. (laughs) (laughs) He went on to St. John's Prep and finally Boston College, where he graduated in 1940. He was the team captain of BC's football team his senior year. The team lost to the Cotton Bowl to Clemson that year.
0: Okay, I'm going to piss some people off here for sure with this comment, but Clemson seems to always have been the better of the two teams. Please don't troll me over that. Hey, wasn't there a baseball player in the bunch too?
1: Yes, Buck. Ronald J. Buck Weaver was born the 22nd of July, 1910 to Jeremiah and Margaret Weaver. Buck graduated from Boston University with a degree in business administration in 1932. He went on to get a law degree from his alma mater in 1934. He was captain of the hockey team his senior year. But Buck's true passion was baseball. It was a family tradition. One brother was an umpire for decades, and another played for Albany in the late 1930s. Weaver himself was signed on with the Philadelphia Athletics just after he graduated law school. Double letter, boy. And
0: hey, didn't uh, Kehoe play hockey?
1: Yes. John Francis Kehoe Jr. was born on the 17th of October 1919 to John F. Kehoe and Emma O'Connell. He was the captain of the Boston College high school hockey team his senior year. Keo went on to graduate from B.C. in 1941. He also got his private pilot certification while there. Flying hockey player. And what about John B. Green? John Bertram Green was born in December 1910 to Michael and Alice Green. His father's side of the family were some of the original settlers of tilting Newfoundland, dating back to the early 1700s. He graduated from Dorchester High School and went on to get a law degree from Northeastern in 1932.
0: Well, more than a few law degrees in the bunch, and
1: Larkin did too, right? John Paul Larkin was born on the 21st of October, 1915. He graduated from BU and then Suffolk Law.
0: No, oh, there's nothing too exciting in Larkin's younger
1: years. Well, not until we get into his FBI career.
0: All right, tell us about Frizzoli.
1: Leonard Frizzoli was born in November 1916 to Lawrence and Antonetta Frizzoli in Cambridge. He graduated from B.C. with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Education in 1941. Meh, another boring backstory. All right. And last but not least, Edward Powers. The outsider. He's the only one who wasn't a local. Ed Powers was born in August 1913 to Edward J. Powers Sr., a Chicago police detective sergeant, and his wife, Ruth. In 1936, Ed Powers got his degree in accounting from Lawrence College in Wisconsin. He was Phi Beta Kappa. His mentor at college was the future president of Harvard. Powers worked in insurance for a while after graduating. He didn't play ball himself, only golf. Oh, you loner. He was also an expert marksman. Once, after giving a speech at a law enforcement academy, he was egged on to come to the firing range and give a demonstration. Using a pistol, he fired in front of the crowd from every distance and position, standing, kneeling, laying prone, and scored 99 out of 100.
0: Oh, talk about a show-off, a man after my own heart.
1: I've titled this episode as a nod to Specky O'Keefe, who once referred to Ed Powers as, quote, one of those all-American guys, unquote.
0: (laughs) Well, it's accurate. Now that we know a little bit about their early days, tell us about how they became a team.
1: McNamara headed the team that handled the Brinks case. He joined the FBI in 1942 after a brief stint with the U.S. rubber company that he got through his college football coach, Frank Lay. He also played briefly in the revived short-lived semi-pro team, the Providence Steamrollers. J. Edgar Hoover once described McNamara as alert, diligent, aggressive, and skilled.
0: Remember that McNamara goes on to be the police commissioner of Boston for a decade after leaving the FBI. He definitely was a dedicated law enforcement officer. Wasn't John Green already in the Boston office when McNamara came on?
1: Well, I'm not entirely sure when Green came back to Boston. He went into private practice in Boston for several years after he graduated from Northeastern Law School. He joined the FBI in 1938. He served in various FBI offices around the country before returning to Boston. You may recall him from our previous episode on the Brinks case. Green was the one who swore out the affidavits for the warrants to search Specky O'Keefe and his sister's residences in 1950, and he was Rico's supervisor in 1962. Green retired from the FBI soon after that incident and went back into private practice.
0: As I mentioned at the beginning, Green will be returning later in the season, but this time as a defense counsel for some of the very men he had been trying to arrest over the years.
1: Next, we have John F. Keogh. He applied to join the FBI straight out of college. His draft card has the address of the FBI penciled in across the top. He was stationed in New York City, among other locations, before returning back home to Boston in 1947.
0: Okay. I know you think that Keo got the bum end of the stick all the time because he was always the one prying off a wall panel or the first one through the door. But since I see a bit of my own character in that, I have to disagree. He volunteered. He wanted to be the one to step up before everyone else. I can see him screaming, no, no, I'll do it. Let me do it. That's me all the way. Not because we think we're better, but we don't want to wait around while someone else fucks it up.
1: Oh, please. You guys do think you're better and more capable than the rest of us. Hey, watch it. I resemble that remark. Well, the more I think about it, the more I think you're right about his character. A 1971 article in the Boston Globe noted that Keough received 60 letters of commendation over the course of his 29-year FBI career. He was after the kudos. So it would seem. He was also the first one in the door when they went to arrest George O'Brien in the Danvers case.
0: Poor George O'Brien. He should have stuck with gambling. He was a lousy thief.
1: Well, at least Keogh didn't have to use any of his sports moves on him. Next, we have John Paul Larkin. He applied to the FBI in 1941. According to his draft card, he was working for Sears Roebuck at the time. He was first sent to New York City, but eventually he was stationed in Costa Rica and Venezuela during some portion of World War II. His oldest child was born in Caracas. Larkin was on the Brinks team from the night of the heist on January 17, 1950. He had grown up in the same neighborhood as the suspects.
0: You really couldn't find any early stories about Frizzoli, Weaver, and Schwatzer's careers?
1: Well, Buck Weaver's baseball career seems to have been short-lived. By 1940, he was in private law practice with an older brother, Leonard, and it doesn't look like he served in the war either. Frizzoli joined the FBI in February 1942. The only reference to Frizzoli that I could find in the newspapers prior to the Brinks case was when he and a fellow agent were able to rescue twin boys who had been thrown out the window of a burning building in Cambridge by their mother. Schwatzer taught firearms courses to local cops throughout the 1940s and continued the tradition even after he retired in the 1960s.
0: Sharp, shooter, Schwatzer. Okay, to round out the team, there was Ed Powers, the special agent in charge.
1: Powers also joined the FBI in 1941. He started his career in New York City and then got sent to San Antonio. He was soon sent to D.C. where he worked at headquarters and took night classes to get his law degree from Georgetown. In July of 1945, Hoover tasked Powers with overseeing his personal campaign against the Communist Party of the USA. As a reward for his success, Ed Powers was made assistant special agent in charge in Pittsburgh and then Minneapolis. He was then put in charge of the Miami office.
0: How many commies could have been hanging around Miami?
1: Well, there actually was a story about that, but I didn't want to get into it here because it didn't seem relevant to our story. Another time, though.
0: When we start our next series about JFK, Spies and Wise Guys, we'll revisit that story for sure.
1: So by late 1954, Hoover was getting frustrated with the slow progress of the Brinks case. Specky O'Keefe was in jail, but was still uncooperative. Hoover knew he could rely on one person to get the job done. In early December, Ed Powers arrived in Boston, the 6th SAC post-Brinks. He also had a brand new office on the 10th floor of the Sheraton Building. One month later, Ed Powers was quoted as saying, The FBI is still working on the Brinks case to develop leads in order to bring the case to a successful conclusion, unquote.
0: Conclusion? What about actually solving the crime?
1: Eh, solving crimes is for suckers. T-shirt.
0: Oh, okay. That reminds me, our Tea Public Shop is up. The link is in the show notes. Okay, enough pandering. Tell us about some of their crime-fighting adventures.
1: You might recall that Ed Powers and John Larkin were the two special agents who convinced Specky O'Keefe to become their star witness. Specky wasn't the only government witness during the two-month-long trial, though. McNamara's team all got their chance to shine on the stand. Kehoe testified that he alone had interviewed more than 1,000 people over a six-and-a-half-year period.
0: See, I told you, glory seeker.
1: Well, over 6,000 people were interviewed during that period by the FBI, so his estimate is probably about right. But now I want to tell the story that inspired this episode. In May of 1956, the last two Brinks suspects were arrested in an apartment on Coleman Street in Dorchester. Boyhood friends Sandy Richardson and James Maherity had been on the lam since January, but they weren't placed on the FBI's most wanted list until April.
0: Oh, I was hoping you were going to tell
1: this story. Oh, slow down, I'm getting there. Supposedly, a longshoreman named Billy Cameron tipped off the feds as to the fugitives' location. He was linked to Tommy Callahan and Tommy Ballew, who were the ones keeping Richardson and Faherty housed in Fed. Remember from the Moldy Loot episode that Jordan Perry had once used the name Tommy Ballew as an alias. Cameron claimed that he had been the one to rent the apartment in Dorchester for the fugitives, but that he had never been paid for his services. As revenge, Cameron ratted. A month later, Cameron was found slumped over the steering wheel of his car, two caliber slugs in his face. Tommy Callahan was arrested for Cameron's murder, but the authorities could not make the charges stick. Tommy Callahan will be joining us again in future episodes.
0: Tommy Callahan meets a face worse than two bullets, fate worse than two bullets, forgive me, and Baloo didn't make it out too well in the end either.
1: Well, we'll get to all of that later in the season. The FBI staked out the Dorchester tenement to see which unit was getting food delivered by Ballou. Powers and his men created an elaborate operation to secure the building before going in. With some agents dressed as custodians and others tenants, they surrounded the apartment and had every door and window covered. A team of about a dozen agents went to the door, pistols drawn, and battered their way in. Powers was first in the room.
0: He beat Kehoe. I told you he was a show-off.
1: It took seven former sports stars and their colleagues to take down two fugitives from justice who were in the middle of choking down Denny Moore beef stew and rolling $5,000 worth of coins into paper packages.
0: I have this visual of Sandy and Faraday with two rusty cans of Denny Moore and the feds barging in. I told you it's hilarious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On the stand, Schwatzer recalled that when the FBI men burst into the second floor apartment, Richardson dashed for the bathroom but was grabbed by special agent Keough. Schwarzer said he took Richardson under control and that Keo then pursued and grabbed Faherty. Oh,
0: to be a fly on the wall.
1: Keough later described his tackle as a lunge when questioned by defense attorney Lawrence O'Donnell in court. Keogh said he left his feet in the grab to prevent Faherty from reaching the three revolvers that were on a chair under a towel in the bathroom.
0: If you were on the lam, would you have three pistols on a chair in the toilet?
1: And stashed under a towel. Buck Weaver later testified that he had found a bottle of hair dye in the bathroom medicine cabinet. Sandy Richardson had colored his hair brown in an attempt to disguise himself. His hair was normally a white blonde, which is why he was called Sandy. Another agent testified that he commented to Richardson, "'I thought you were a little white-haired old man. What happened?' "'I dyed it,' Richardson replied." I thought you once told me that if I ever came to arrest you, all I had to do was ring your doorbell. Instead, you were here in your apartment with guns and you've got a reception committee waiting for us. Richardson responded, well, you know how it is, Mac.
0: Then what happened?
1: The two fugitives were hustled into the kitchen by Schwatzer and Keo. As they held them, Keo shouted to Wefer, there's guns in the bathroom, Buck.
0: Whenever I hear Buck, I think of the little rascals or something. A fucking grown man with the nick- nickname Buck.
1: Oh, I remember watching this as a kid, but that kid's name was Buck Wheat. But Buck does seem to be a popular nickname for jocks. When the Brinks case finally went to court in September, the feds leaked to the press that Keo had wrenched his back in the tussle with Sandy and Faherty.
0: Mm, serves him right.
1: Well, it couldn't have been that bad because he had no problem getting down on his hands and knees to get the moldy loot out of the wall at Wimpy's place the following month.
0: I still like to think that Rico was standing off in the corner aloof like a cat looking upon Kehoe with disdain as he labored away removing the wall panel.
1: Can you imagine? Just one more tidbit to kind of wrap up the Brinks case. Ed Powers sat beside District Attorney Garrett Byrne for the entire two months of the Brinks trial. Reminds me of a future case that we'll be covering much later in the season. So what happened to the team after the Brinks case was closed? The task force that McNamara headed was formed for the sole purpose of resolving the Brinks case. But once that job was completed in 1956, the team was not dissolved, but rather rebranded and became devoted to rooting out organized crime. Eventually, it was expanded to cover Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island, all of New England except Connecticut, which fell under New York's jurisdiction. Your glory hound was heading it by then.
0: From the early 1930s until 1957, J. Edgar Hoover had insisted that there was no such thing as La Cosa Nostra or national organized crime. He instead said that the mob only operated at the local level.
1: So they created a boogeyman to fight. McNamara's team needed a new task to focus on.
0: Well, there were more than enough crimes to keep everyone busy. As the 50s rolled into the 60s, there were nearly 100 gangland slayings in and around the Boston area. Add to that the number of armed robberies of banks and armored cars, there was no need to create anything.
1: You don't have to tell me. Remember, I'm the one who compiled the spreadsheets of informants, murders, and crimes for this podcast and our book.
0: Uh, On that note, I think it's time for us to call it quits. Nina's reminding me of all her hard work, which means she might start getting nasty here.
1: You are really trying to give people the wrong
0: idea about me. Hey, people need to know what I'm dealing with, you know? Okay, you know I'm only teasing you. Next week, we'll be discussing dad's release from prison, his arrest for Fats Bucelli's murder, and how he became an informant for the FBI. I'll spare you the plugging today. Just check out the show notes. Please leave a review wherever you listen to us and share an episode with your friends. Again, thank you all. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, True Stories of Criminals, Crimes and Lies.